1: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Alexandra Falindra to discuss her new book, Race, Rights, and Rifles The Origin of the NRA and Contemporary Gun Culture, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2023. The United States has more guns than people and more gun violence than any Western democracy. Scholars in diverse fields interrogate why 21st century Americans support gun ownership and valorize vigilantism, even as they fear gun violence. Many question how the NRA, the National Rifle Association, has successfully lobbied for radical gun laws that most Americans don't support. In Race, Rights, and Rifles, Dr. Philindra highlights political culture, She argues that the NRA depends upon a political culture that can be traced back to the American revolution rather than focus on the constitution, lock in liberalism, rule of law, or individual rights. She argues that the American revolution depended upon classical Republican ideals, especially the martial virtue of the citizen soldier that became foundational to American democracy. In her eyes, American gun culture fuses the Republican citizen soldier with white male supremacy to create what Philindra calls a scriptive martial republicanism. Her book demonstrates how the militarized understanding of political membership prominent in NRA narratives and embraced by many white Americans fits within this broader revolutionary ideology. Even as contemporary NRA narratives embrace 19th and 18th century versions of a script of martial republicanism, the NRA radically decouples political virtue and military service by associating virtue with the consumer act of purchasing a firearm. Rather than emphasizing military service or preparedness, consumer choice defines the politically virtuous citizen. Even as white Americans embrace this combination of civic republicanism and white male supremacy, Dr. Philindra's research shows that they also hold a competing form of republicanism she calls inclusive republicanism. That includes a commitment to peaceful political engagement, civic forms of volunteerism and participation, and a strong belief in multiculturalism. Dr. Alexandra Philindra is an associate professor of political science and psychology at the University of Illinois, Chicago. She specializes in American gun politics, immigration policy, race and ethnic politics, public opinion, and political psychology. And I am delighted to welcome her to the New Books Network. Thank you so very much for having me. So let's start with how you came to write this book on the NRA and political gun culture. Uh, how did it build on other work you'd done previously or not? Uh, and uh uh, and, you know, in what subfields in political science and other disciplines you're drawing from? So um, I started working
2: on issues of guns back in 2013, uh, right at the time of um, the Connecticut school shooting. Um, and uh, I approached one of my colleagues who is also working on public opinion. And I was like, Noah, uh, I think we should write something about this. And there is something um, that links to race here, that racial attitudes must be important here. And his response was like, there must be a basically a library full of books on this. Like, it can't be new. So I went to the library and it turns out that there was very little research on uh, guns and racial attitudes. So, as a first cut, we started writing um, sort of more in the political psychology and public opinion area, um, re- relying on uh, the contemporary data, and we came up with a theoretical approach that is uh, sort of very common in the field that sort of talks about how um, there was a change to American conservatism after the civil rights movement, and that the NRA sort of piggybacked on that change to um, white conservatism that became a link to racial resentment and that it created a narrative of victimization and a narrative linked to racial resentment. And that's what motivated people and sort of led people to buy more uh, firearms and to support uh, gun rights. Um, But there's a problem With this work. Um, That I was never satisfied with um, this article and this work, even though it was, uh, it, it regained prominence in the field. People liked it. They were like, this is innovative, this is new. But for me, it was, well, this didn't, guns didn't show up in American culture in 1965, all of a sudden. It wasn't like, before that, white Americans didn't have any guns or guns didn't play a role. And suddenly, after the civil rights movement, um, people started getting guns and sort of developing this attachment to guns and that this culture, sort of the NRA, created this culture from, uh, from scratch. Um, but the legal scholarship that uh, a historical legal scholarship that was available to me uh, didn't give me a satisfying answer. Um, So I started digging into American history uh, and started reading classical American historians of the 1960s and 70s who reframed uh, American history from the individualist canon to the Republican canon, because the uh, legal historians of guns were very, very clear about the importance of Republicanism in uh, uh, the legal history of the Second Amendment, but they did never linked it to the racial history. So I needed to figure out how exactly these two things connect. And that's what
1: led me to a very
2: deep dive in history.
1: It's always hard in a podcast, uh, as opposed to a book, to understand what's capitalized or not capitalized. In the book, you're very careful to say that when you are capitalizing republicanism, you mean the party, but small r republicanism means something else. And it means something very, very specific to historians, uh, and to political theorists and people who do American political culture, American political development. So, Since the listeners come from all sorts of subfields and all sorts of disciplines, just just remind us, uh, what is it that is uh, classical republicanism in contrast to uh, liberalism or a focus on democracy that's more about individual rights? Absolutely.
2: So uh, classical republican tradition goes back to ancient Greece and to uh, Rome and came to the U.S. uh, via people like Machiavelli and the British uh, theoreticians of um, uh, the 17th century. And the idea of civic republicanism uh, or classical republicanism, as it's known, is that the that people in order to be good, first of all, that people have both rights and obligations as citizens, and that a good citizen is uh, someone who actually participates in uh, political life actively, um, but not only in terms of voting or engaging um, in public life as a, an elected official, for example, there is a very specific uh, form of political engagement that is very crucial for the classical Republican tradition, and that is military participation. Uh, at serving in the military, which in this era is actually mandatory uh, in the early part of... Uh, of the American history of American history and earlier,
1: uh, for white Americans, Americans yeah. and male white and male Americans. And, and sometimes there's some religious things too, but we're, and it is
2: very important. Military service is very, very important in creating good citizens because it requires self-sacrifice. And in the Republican tradition, um, this self-interest is opposite to public interest. People who are self-interested are likely to sabotage the public good. Um, Somebody has to be... um, Basically, in order to support the public good, you have to put the public good ahead of your self-interest. And the way that you show that you do that is by being willing to sacrifice in terms of actually putting your life on the line um, in military service to protect the country. So the virtue, political virtue, which is Essentially, the ability to discern between what's good for the country and what's good for you personally comes from this willingness to sacrifice. And that is the core of the Republican tradition, which distinguishes it from the individualist tradition, the Lockean tradition, which sees um, the individual good and uh, the individual interests as uh, central to the public interest, that the public interest is actually the accumulation or the aggregate of the individual interests. Um, That's very different in the, uh, in the Republican tradition, which requires service and requires, obligates citizens not only to participate in politics, but to participate in military service. Um, and that
1: is core to this ideology. Okay. So uh, just to summarize, so you're, you're going back to an earlier set of historians, Gordon Wood, J.G.A. Pocock, Bernard Balin, who said that historians got it wrong. This really isn't a Lockean country. It has these other elements that we need to pay attention to, particularly the Roman Republic and uh, this notion of vir- virtue, which Coming from Machiavelli means manliness. That's all really virtue means. It means being like a man until Christianity adds something else to the meaning of the word virtue. But Machiavelli very much wants to pull it back to that Roman Republican tradition to focus on that. So um, say just a little bit about, uh, you have a lot to say in the book about uh, the American uh, case and how people of color and women are excluded. But before we go to your case, just in the Republican tradition, who was a citizen? Were women included? You talk in the book, for example, about how the opposite of virtue was corruption, and sometimes women stood in for corruption. So was there any sort of, the, in the classical version of this, women's political participation, women's military service? So
2: in the classical version, um, it was all about men. Uh, It was men who could become um, citizens because it was men who served in the military. Women had always a supportive role um, and they were never part of this ideology and they were never citizens. Even in the American, and this is in Europe where it was, Never racialized as as an ideology because race was not a construct that was relevant to the European experience at the time. It was heavily gendered. It was only men and specific groups within men, even um, propertied men, um, men who fulfilled other criteria depending on the era, depending on the context, uh, who could and had the potential to be virtuous, who were invited to participate in military service. When we move to the American context, um, this remains the case, but the American context becomes more complicated because of the um, practice and institution of slavery, which over time becomes chattel slavery. Uh, People are uh, enslaved and serve in perpetual bondage through generations. So at the time of the American Revolution, uh, we have a group of people who are understood as being eligible for citizenship and who can be virtuous. And then we have two groups of people, women on one hand, and African-Americans on the other, both women and men in that category, who are excluded from all uh, versions of citizenship. So the American um, Republican ideology has to find ways to accommodate this social reality and the way that the Amer- American republicanism, uh, this American classical republicanism, is reconstructed here, is by saying that um, relying on the opposite of the um, of virtue, which is corruption, and trying to define. Um, both virtue and corruption in racial as well as gender terms. And in this context, corruption means people who cannot develop uh, political virtue because they're not willing to serve the country, because they are dependent on others, because they do not want to be self-reliant and independent and protect the public good. And African-Americans are viewed through this perspective. Women are split. White women take the role of Republican mothers. They become the incubators of good Republican citizens by being chaste and by being uh, good mothers and good uh, wives. Um, and uh, therefore, they have a role, sub- subordinated, not uh, central and definitely not military role in uh, in the republic. But it's crucial in the sense that they're responsible for creating good uh, citizens by making their sons and their husbands uh, willing to serve the nation. African-American women are never in that category. They're Jezebels, and actually they're used to justify why African-American men can't be uh, virtuous men, because the women are actually the ones who are corrupt, who are sexually improper, who have improper relations, and therefore they can't inculcate um, virtue in their uh, husbands and in their sons. So there are four groups and all play their role in this story.
1: Okay, so the book is divided into three sections, and we've sort of already sort of blended into this. The first part, which is is really focused on historical foundations, and, and what you're trying to do there is understand the sources for um, American political culture and, and also how American political institutions depend on that culture because what you're trying to do is write a book about today. This isn't a book. This is a book that depends on history, but it's a book that is, as you said at the very start of the podcast, was about answering the question, right, uh, about about mass shootings in American um, society today. So what you're looking for is to address, like, what it, why this has persisted, and you're using these historical um, sources to try to to get at um, what you're calling a scriptive polit- Republican uh, ideology. So I think we've done a good job of sort of getting out some of those basics there, um, and and understanding who can and cannot be included, uh, and and there are exceptions as people who listen to this podcast regularly know. I mean. Uh, Women did vote in some of the colonies, New Jersey, where I'm recording from, was one of them. So there's 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 differences in who was seen as somebody who could be a citizen. Yet, as you note in the book, there is something about military service and withholding military service from people of color, from indigenous people. From some uh, some men who didn't have property, from some men based on religion, that is really important, and you and you underline this role uh, that historians have have documented for the passing on republicanism in the private sphere in the role of the mother, something that is then denied, um, as you say, to to uh, African American women, um, based on this stereotype that they don't have that kind of understanding, just, uh, generosity towards the, the Republic. So, Uh, The second part of the book is about the origins and the worldview of the NRA. So the first part sort of establishes this is is what we know about America. The second really gets us to the NRA. And, And here you're using primary sources, including a lot of NRA internal reports and their own publications. In particular, you're very concerned with the magazine, not just the text, but the images that they show to try to tell the association's history and give more of an analysis of how they're using and developing um, ascriptive Republican narratives. So let, let's turn to part two uh, and talk a little bit about like when does the NRA come on the scene? It's not the 17th century. It's not the 18th century. So they're not colonial. They're not in the foundational Republican time. When do they come around? And, and who are they? What do they say they want to do? So the NRA is founded in, in 1871,
2: uh, right at the conclusion of the Civil War. Um, the Civil War is the last major war in American history that is fought by militias, um, what today we know as the National Guards. Uh, each state had its own army, and each state was responsible for organizing and uh, training these armies. So there were as many armies as states and often as many armies as localities. And um, these uh, were not federally organized. There was a separate federal army, the Union Army, that was professionally organized. But everybody else uh, who fought in the Civil War was actually um, either conscripts uh, or volunteers of the states. And... Uh, these were the vaunted citizen soldiers of the revolution and of the republican tradition, who were supposed to have uh, this uh, self-sacrificial uh, uh, proclivity, and sort of they were w- willing to be good soldiers and not to be in order to be good citizens. But what the Civil War showed was that the states did a terrible job in training these soldiers. Uh, And as a result, their performance was pretty terrible. And the NRA actually was an organization of military officers of the Union Army who were very concerned about the quality of shooting uh, of these citizen soldiers of the states. And they wanted to do something about that. So they were military officers uh, and wanted to improve the quality of shooting among the soldiers of the states.
1: And you, in the book, talk about um, who they were organizing and where they were. Um, uh, was there any differences regionally in uh, in some militias that were more functional? Was the NRA organized uh, equally across Uh, What was then the United States at this point? So the NRA starts out in New York, uh,
2: of all places, and uh, it has all its legal problems today in New York. And actually, there is a legal case against it in New York right now. Which is
1: very relevant, because as we're we're recording this podcast, the... NRA is being sued in New York because it was established in New York. So very, very relevant to exactly. 21st and century politics. Exactly. Sorry it's to interrupt charter, you. Its
2: charter is from 1871 in New York State. And that's what Letitia James is going after uh, today in 2023 in this case, this charter from 1871. And it's a New York-based organization. Um, remember, the Union Army is a northern Army. Uh, but in the context of the post Civil War era, the NRA has a conciliatory outlook uh, that wants basically to improve the performance of the National Guards, the State Guards, um, across the country. So it starts in New York. Um, they go to New York authorities to get some money. They start ranges. Their idea is that they're going to create ranges um, across the country and get people, both members of the National Guard and also civilians who could be called in in a future war to uh, fight. Um uh, if there is a major mobilization, uh, to prepare them to to teach them how to shoot, but also instill in them the kind of republican patriotism, this ideology of self sacrifice for the nation of um, militarism. So their hope is that they can be um, a private contractor in who works with um, the military authorities uh, in training civilians and members of the military, of the National Guard specifically, um, in how to shoot and how to handle firearms. That is their goal. It's a military goal. This is a military organization, which is founded by the same people who actually founded the National Guard Association, which is the organization, the official body of today, too, of the National Guards uh, in the United States.
1: So later uh, in the chapter, you're you're talking about the army. You know, the uh, originally republicanism usually smaller. Republicanism focuses on not having a standing army. It's part of the defining idea that a standing army is a sign of corruption. The professionalized military versus you know the citizen soldier. But but you. Mentioned in a really what I thought was interesting way that as the NRA is uh, training people coming out, it's the army's exclusion of certain people from service that allows the NRA to be able to say, well, we're training everyone who 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 was in the army. Can you explain just a little bit about that? Sure. So by the early 20th century, the NRA has
2: become part of the national military establishment. They work out of the um, what's today the Department of Defense essentially, um, the Department of the Army uh, of the early 20th century. And through the National Guards uh, and uh, their advocacy, um, they're able to get all kinds of very particularistic benefits out of the federal government. And this is because um, the army is excluded from um, lobbying the federal government, but the National Guards are not. The National Guards actually are a premier lobbying organization. And because they are uh, the citizen soldiers of the states and they have a very important political role in the states, it is the feeding ground for local politicians. uh, Federal authorities take them very, very seriously. So the NRA gets what it wants, which is to become the par excellence, um, provider of shooting training, uh, for civilians in the country, uh, including a special gig for its members, which is that if you're a member of the NRA, you can get free, um, ammunition and, uh, discounted federal guns, discounted price on federal guns. So a lot of people flock to the NRA. And the NRA is sort of uh, organizing these events. And But because it's a military organization, it's following military rules. And in this era, the military is excluding, for the most part, African-Americans um, from... The service, and also women. Women are completely excluded from military service. So, if the NRA is working to sort of bring in new blood to the army and to the National Guards, new recruits, um, it's they're thinking about Af- about white men, and this becomes pretty obvious with one particular case from the very early twentieth uh, century. The NRA doesn't have uh, gender restrictions in its events because the assumption is that the people who are going to participate in uh, a shooting match are going to be men. It's men who are interested in military activities and participating in this type of event. Uh, shooting match is thought of as a uh, as something that men want to do, except there is uh, this very famous uh, performer of the era, like Annie Oakley, um, uh, but a, a different woman, and uh, she decides to participate in one of these uh, events, and she win she wins uh, a trophy. in in this shooting competition against uh, these men. And it becomes really funny because then one of the rules of the competition is that the winners, uh, their names will be sent to the Department of Defense for the purpose of recruiting them officially into the National Guard. Except what are you gonna do with this woman who is not eligible to be a member of the National Guard? And Plinky is, becomes a problem uh, for uh, the military authorities because they're just puzzled. They don't know what to do. This is a weird situation because how is it possible that a woman wins a competition or participates in one voluntarily? So it highlights how um, extensive and universal the gender blindfold, blinders were at the time that they could not think that to even put the exclusion in the rules because it was so obvious that only men would participate and that this is only for men.
1: So, um, the original theory of republicanism also had this issue of focusing on manliness and martial and associating martialness and manliness. Uh, it didn't, as you said, Necessarily have the racial component. Uh, it, the book is really talking about the way in which the NRA was fusing this classical citizen soldier with white male supremacy. Uh, it seems like what you're saying is that the male part is really part of the classical Republican part and the NRA didn't need to do too much there because women were always seen by Machiavelli and others as corruptors, as people who soften men, distract them, uh, take care of old people and babies and are therefore disqualified from being the selfless citizen soldiers. But how is it that the NRA fuses this masculine citizen soldier ideology with with white supremacy? what What is the particular, um, uh, what is that particular uh, linkage? How does it happen? Where are they getting that from? Are they getting that from American political culture writ large? Are they adding something to it? H- how is that working? So already the military... Uh,
2: traditionally excluded African Americans. African Americans have participated in every American war, but up until uh, the Vietnam War, it was mostly in non-combat positions as support personnel. Um, And Of course, there are always exceptions. And we know in the American Revolution, among the first people uh, who died in in the Boston Massacre was an African-American man. Um, But the way that the army has um, trained and used African-American soldiers and African-American men has always been with a distance from the gun. Um, They have always... Uh, up until, again, World War II, kept them in positions where they wouldn't be using guns. They would be uh, away from the battlefield, uh, from the active battlefield. And the reason for that is uh, twofold. One is because they didn't think that African-Americans can be good soldiers. And also, they didn't want to trust African-Americans with guns um, because they were afraid that African-Americans could use these firearms and the ability to um, to fire effectively against the state. So that is how um, uh, white supremacy was built in and caked in to the American military system. Uh, and African-Americans since the Civil War um, have fought very, very hard to be included in military service because they recognized its importance for political membership. They saw, they bought into this ideology of republicanism and they recognized, they thought that if only we can show to you that we can be effective soldiers, that we can die for the country, then how could you deny us the right to participate in political life. And of course, from the white perspective, that was exactly the reason why you wouldn't want African-Americans in the military because you wouldn't want them in political life and you created these exclusions in order to sustain the political exclusion as well. Um, So we have seen uh, formal segregation and exclusion from combat for African American men uh, up until essentially World War II, and in the NRA narratives and what you see in their magazines is that if you can't, if you were somebody who came from an extraterrestrial and you came to Uh, to the United States and started reading The American Rifleman, and your understanding of American society was based on that, you'd think that there was no other group in society other than white men, simply because 99.9% of the pictures are of white men. So it is for white men, it's a publication, a group that is about white men for white men. African-Americans soldiers or gun owners are very, very rarely portrayed, if ever, in the magazine. And I've looked at about 100 years worth of magazines for this.
1: In the book, you're... uh... Very careful to talk about the intersections, that we don't have one identity, and that these multiple identities play a role in these narratives. And in this case, uh, Black men are looking to have the privilege that white men have. The head of household is what turns the white man into the protector of. The females and the children who are in the house and the women are re- sort of reduced to the same status. That comes from coverture. That's not something that uh, the book really talks about. But uh, some of the other books that we've done on the program do focus on. And so here what you see is is black men wanting to serve and wanting to get certain kinds of um, uh, uh, Respect. Uh, We had a a fabulous book that talked about marriage and how it is that much of what was promised uh, to blacks who served in the union, uh, black Americans who served in the union uh, army was that they could have a legal marriage, which had been denied to them previously. And if something happened to them, their wives would would be getting something upon their death from the government. So there's all these sort of intersecting cleavages. And I just want to say that the book does a good job of trying to to show that, that everybody doesn't always have one um, particular uh, identity that matters in these narratives. Um, Before we go on to talking about part 3 is there is there anything else you want to add in this section in terms of the nra's theory of democracy or are, are we good with what we've gotten out there i the,
2: i think it is important to note the connection of the nra's theory of democracy to republicanism and what it has maintained and which is relevant to today because What the NRA's theory of democracy is, is that we need firearms as citizens. The good citizen needs a firearm in order to protect from corrupt political elites. Political elites are uh, always seen within the Republican paradigm as people who could take advantage. They are in a position of power, they can always, um, they're always seen with suspicion. So, A good citizen who understands what the public good is and who has access to firearms can protect the republic from abuse, from political leaders who are not looking out for the public good. Um, What has happened, the, the Republican paradigm very, very specifically links this to military service. So you're part of the state you are engaging with the state and you have obligations. But in the modern NRA uh, ideology, it is gun ownership itself that makes you virtuous. It has decoupled the ownership from military service. Um, And in that sense, you go to to Walmart, you buy a firearm, in some places you don't even need a license or training or anything, so you just go buy it, and that is what makes you a good citizen. Um, that creates very, very serious concerns um, in the modern environment where we understand um, the state, not the citizen, as the entity that controls the legitimate use of force. When we have a model where both the state and the citizens – legitimately can use arms against each other, essentially, that is a very uh, problematic understanding of democracy. And part of the problem here is that this uh, new version of ideology, which is embedded in actual, uh, actually in, um, in legal doctrine today, uh, with the new decisions that have come out in the past decade. Uh, the problem here is that we don't have a prior understanding of other than going to Walmart, or who is really a good citizen and on what basis do these good citizens and who exactly are they who can make these decisions to go and literally shoot elected officials? Because, you know, if you have the right to own firearms to prevent tyranny, what's tyranny and how and who decides what's tyranny? And that becomes a huge problem in 2024 coming into this particular election.
1: Yeah, it's an incredible transformation between a public act of serving in the military versus a private consumer act of purchasing a weapon. And I think this is one of the biggest contributions of the book. It maps beautifully onto Drew McHevitt's book. We just did that on the show, who is also looking at the role of consumerism in the explosion of guns that takes place in the middle of the 20th century. So... Amazing stuff there. The third part of the book is really different, in part because you're bringing a different set of political science methodology uh, and and background to it. Uh, The third part is looking at public opinion. And you're using an original national survey of white Americans that you did to, to demonstrate the prevalence of a script of Republican ideology in the white public and to try to look at the relate explore the relationship to gun related beliefs their policy preferences what do they think about democratic norms and political violence so can you just say very briefly we're towards the end of like what uh, how is it that you brought this this methods to this and and some of the highlights of what this survey showed about what a white americans uh think so
2: that goes back to my training in public opinion and my problem of trying to go beyond 1965 and understanding the attachment to guns today. Um, and I needed a way, how do we measure scriptive republicanism today in public opinion? Um, so I designed a relevant measure that looks at how basically understanding notions of who is a true American Uh, based on race, nativity, Christianity, also linked to beliefs about gun ownership being um, a sign of good citizenship and militarized uh, beliefs about who is a true American. And what I show is that there is this underlying ideology that links ascriptive understandings of who an American is based on race, Christianity, nativity, also gender uh, perceptions about gender roles with the militarized component. So it is ascriptive, it's martial, and it is Republican because it is about military service, it is about um, helping the police, it is about the common participation. Um, And I show, I demonstrate in the book that people who hold high levels of this ideology are more likely to be gun owners, are more likely to support the NRA. And what is more frightful is that they are also more likely to um, embrace uh, political violence, to see political violence as a means justifying the ends.
1: That part of the book is really frightening, and it seems as if everybody is, is locked, uh, white Americans, not everybody, uh, are locked in. But, but you also say that there's something else in there, a different kind of republicanism that you call inclusive republicanism, that includes more of a commitment to to peaceful political engagement and more of a belief in pluralism and multiculturalism. So can you say a little bit about where you think this leaves us? I mean, in a lot of ways, reading your book, uh, you know, uh, after having watched armed people go into the United States Capitol, something that people would have thought was unthinkable, I think, 20 years ago. And now, as you say, it is Front of mind for the November 2024 election in the United States. So, w- where does this leave you? Is there are there is there a way to change this ideology? You you note in the book that the NRA is the deliverer, like one of the most effective deliverers of this ideology, and you're saying that it's embedded in American political culture. But with the uh, the fall of the NRA um, I mean the bankruptcy of the NRA, if they don't have the power and the money, does where does this leave us? Um, is are other people holding on to this what what is your sort of you know as you conclude, uh, how do you see these two competing uh, republicanisms one very pessimistic in my eyes and one more optimistic.
2: So we do have two very distinct political cultures in the us today. And uh, they're competing. And uh, um, we hope a lot will rest, obviously, on what happens in the 24 election. Um, This dark culture is there. It's important. And unfortunately, even though the NRA is in decline with all its legal woes, um, this has been institutionalized through the recent decisions of the Supreme Court. So we have made law and we have elevated this ideology into constitutional principle. Um, and that is means that it's very hard and deeply embedded now into institutions. It is a key component of the messaging of the Republican Party. So the NRA has become basically obsolete. at this point because it has won. Um, The battle is now how to contain and uh, change this culture. And we are seeing these battles that are being fought in education in real time, because these myths and these ways of, uh, this ideology is also present in our educational system, and there are people who are fighting to reintroduce it and make it stronger within our educational system. So it is in those battles, in the states, in local uh, schools, where we are going to have to fight it and see uh, whether we can sort of make these changes in the future. Because these this ideology exists in our broader environment, it exists in our families, it exists in our churches, it exists in the monuments that we have um, in our cities and towns, it exists in movies that we watch. Uh, So the critique that we bring on and the way that we um, look at our education materials of what we tell young people is very key in combating Um, this view of uh, this exclusive view of Americanism. Um, The problem of containing firearms is far more difficult, uh, both in the short and in the medium term, I think.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us today and also for this really thought-provoking, incredibly detailed and well-researched book um, I've been talking to Dr. Alexandra Philandra. Uh, she's the uh, Associate Professor of Political Science and, and psycholo- Political Psychology. Uh, the book is Race, Rights, and Rifles, the Origins of the NRA and Contemporary Gun Culture. Thanks so much for joining New Books on Political Science, Alexandra. Thank you
2: so much, so very much for having me.